0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Brooklyn Zen Center on this beautiful Saturday semi cloudy morning. And uh, my name is David Zimmerman for those of you who may not know me. And I'm actually a visiting teacher here. I'm here for about three months and my term ends at the end of this month. I get to go back to the San Francisco Zen Center which is my home temple. So it's a joy to be with you all here during this time. And uh, also, I'm just curious, who's new today to Brooklyn Zen Center? Raise your hand. Ooh, lots of new people. Welcome, everybody. Ah, Great to see you all. Well, today we're having a bit of a special day because it's actually a one day sitting, which means we're taking the opportunity to kind of set aside our usual affairs and activities and errands and everything we might do on a Saturday. And some of us are choosing just to sit, just to be here together in silence and stillness and observe the mind, observe conditions as they arise and observe our relationship to our life itself. And so usually what we do is we actually close the Zendo during one day sittings so that everyone could just be still unsettled. Um, because it's July and there aren't as many people around, you know, everyone's off vacationing and doing other things. Uh, we decided to experiment with actually having the morning part of the one day sitting open to the wider public, so more people could come and explore um, for yourself what is practice, what is sitting meditation, and also support those who have made the, the uh, effort to be here for the day. So well, what will happen after this Dharma talk, we'll have, a period, uh, we'll have a short service, which is chanting and uh, uh, some um, bowing, prostrations, and then we'll have temple cleaning we've period of soji, where we help take care of the temple together. And then at that point, those people who are not here for the full one-day sitting will be asked to depart for the day and continue on with whatever activity you have planned. And those who are here for the one-day sitting will sit down to have lunch together in silence. So that's the flow of the day. So I am a one-day sitting, or in um, Japanese it's called zazen-kai, zazen-kai. It's a wonderful opportunity to just step out of our usual busyness and redirect mind's attention just back to this present moment, to being still and silent, coming back to our, our true nature, our deeper nature, you know, reconnecting with our authentic self rather than the usual engagements that we have out in the world. And um, so what I'd like to do is I'm going to give what's called a Dharma talk it's some words of encouragement, inspiration, reflections on some particular Zen teachings and then um, because it's a one-day sitting I'm gonna kind of gear it towards particularly those who are sitting for the day but I actually hope that everyone here will find it inspiring, encouraging, beneficial, supportive, so may that be the case. Um, and particularly what I'd like to focus on today um, are a couple things. One is inner stability, uh, returning to silence, and then um, not arguing with life. So those are the three kind of things I'm going to try to weave together here, so bear with me as I do that. So, One of the things that I've learned over my mm, 25 years of practice um, has been to observe the ways in which I, um, contention. Contention is a typical way in which I might engage my life and what's going on. And I think many of us have the same kind of, attitude or needing towards, you know, I don't like this, I don't like what's going on, kind of resisting uh, what's happening in our lives, and how that seems to be our, um, our first impulse, you know. And so um, what I've noticed as I've studied um, and practiced over the years is that um, it's not so much the circumstances in which I find myself that is the cause for my Um, unhappiness or my dis-ease, but rather my relationship that I have with the circumstances, that is the particular mind thoughts and ideas and views that I bring to how things should or shouldn't be, you know, that's where my suffering begins. And basically um, this is what Buddhism proposes that this contention between the way things are, reality, this is it, this is what's happening, and the way we think things should be, or the way we prefer things to be, is the root cause of our suffering. And so we study that. We study that very deeply in Zen practice. And this fundamental dualism between the way things are and the way we think things should be creates a sense of separation in ourselves and between each other and between the life that we're living. And so what we're doing in practice is studying, how does this sense of separation arise? How do I contribute to it? What views and ideas and feelings and emotions and whatever else I bring to it creates this sense of other, I'm not belonging, or somehow being separate you know, from all of us all of this life manifesting right here and right now and oftentimes the sense of separation actually i feel becomes embodied in me you know distilled in my very being you know and i act walk around kind of contracted separating from others you know even from myself you know so how do we meet and address this particular sense of separation and imbalance and um instability. you know. And one of the things that Zen and our practice encourages is come, sit, be still. Come back to silence. Stop the arguments. You know, stop creating separation just by being here and being open to the life as it's appearing and manifesting moment after moment again and again. You know? So, um, with this in mind, I want to share with you a particular koan, a Zen koan, and uh, koan is kind of a, a Zen story, if you will, a teaching story of sorts. Okay, and this particular teaching story is from a collection of koans. This is um, called the Mumonkan, the Gateless Gate, the very Zen title, Gateless Gate, um, and it's titled, uh, it's case twenty nine. is titled The Sixth Ancestors, your mind moves. So this is the koan. The wind was flapping a temple flag, and two monks started an argument. One said, the flag moved. The other said, the wind moved. They argued back and forth, but could not reach a conclusion. The sixth ancestor, Wei Nang, said, it is not the wind that moves. It is not the flag that moves. It is your mind that moves. The two monks were dumbstruck. It's not the wind that moves. It's not the flag that moves. It is your mind that moves. The two monks were dumbstruck. Has anyone heard this koan before? A few people. Okay. So, it's the case that in um, China long ago, whenever a Zen master gave a sermon or a Dharma talk like I'm doing today, particularly during a sesshin or a, a, a intensive meditation period, or one day sitting like today, that there would be a flag that was raised at the temple gate to let the wider community know that there is a Dharma talk and you're welcome to join or um, support the monks and nuns who were um, in the practice of awakening together in whatever way you would want to. And so um, here are these two monks having an argument in the courtyard, right? And isn't this kind of typical of Zen monks? I don't know if for those of you know the literature, constantly arguing and bickering about something. You know, something small and mundane and every day. You know, you got nothing much to do in a Zen temple but sit around. So when you do that, oftentimes the mind gets, you know, activated, wants it to be busy in some way. So, but this is also our common human occurrence that we are often having some trivial argument with someone else in our life. Something small and kind of, you know, pointless in some ways. Like, who's gonna take out the trash? You know? Or where's the, uh, what's the best sports team? You know? Or the best place to get pizza in town? You know? Or um, whatever else uh, you may find is kind of typical you know, for you to get involved in. So, but I, I would suggest to not be fooled by the apparent simplicity of this koan. Because, uh, as is the case with many koans, there's something much deeper that's happening here. And we're going to explore that together. So I like and appreciate the use of the word flap, you know, and the flag was flapping. And uh, that particular translation for uh, this koan, flap means to cause to swing or sway loosely, especially with noise. Okay, now. I think that's appropriate for how to describe our minds. Our minds have a tendency to flap about, right? And also um, you know, swinging back and forth in reactivity to circumstances and appearance in whatever way. And accompanying with all this flapping is a lot of noise in our minds, you know? And this noise usually manifests as thoughts, judgments, opinions, you know, and it may come in our mind or we may actually verbalize them, our flapping mouths, you know, flapping mind, flapping mouths, always making noise in some way, okay? The, uh, the word dukkha, which is usually used in earlier Buddhist teachings, uh, is often translated as suffering or dissatisfaction or dis-ease And actually dukkha comes from a Pali word, which means a wheel having a poor axle hole. A wheel having a poor poor axle hole. And so basically it means the wheel is out of balance. And this out of balanceness creates discomfort for the people who are riding in the particular wagon which the wheel is attached to. And I've heard it said that um, the word dukkha itself is an anamanopoeia for the sound that an off-centered axle wheel makes. Dukkha, 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 right? And so when I think of this, the flag flapping in the wind and our particular flapping, I think there's kind of a similar anamanopoeia, you know, of what's happening in our mind. Blah, 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 back and forth. Dukkha is basically the result of our mistakenly thinking and arguing that the world needs to revolve around us, around me. That we are the hub and the axle of the wheel of life, the center of the universe. And yet this way of thinking, as it teaches in the Dharma, is off-centered and imbalanced. It doesn't take into account our interdependency, that we are dependent on each other for our very life. We come together as one life, so no life can be left out or discarded in any way. All of us are part of the wheel. How do we function together in harmony and in accord? The reality is, nowhere and no one is the center of the universe. And yet, when we try to argue this and put our stake in the ground, our particular flag, we suffer. And we also often create the conditions of suffering for others. And this is what we study in our practice. So. As Wei Nang points out to the two monks, the apparent flapping of the flags and do, in part, the flapping of our small minds, our conditioned minds, our small selves, our ordinary day-to-day consciousness. And most of the time, this flapping that we do with our small selves is in self-defense. We're trying to defend some idea about who we are. I'm like this. I'm not like that. How dare you say anything else about the way I am? Mm -hmm. And we often imagine that if we argue or struggle, we can try to prove the existence of a separate permanent self. And Buddhism teaches there is no separate permanent self. We are just life coming together, this constant flow of being. There's nothing that I can pull out and say, this is the real David. All of you are the real David. I need to remember that. We come up and rise together. Okay. And so We don't want to acknowledge this often, and so we argue. And oftentimes, the more we argue and the louder we argue, we think the more real we're going to get, right? If I just raise my voice and repeat it one more time, they're going to get it this time. You know, how right I am, how real I am, who I am. And is this true for you? Do you notice this for yourselves? And then there are the ways in which we are not living the life we have. How much time and energy do we spend on seeking something else? Someone else. Another job, another opportunity, another circumstance, another condition anything other than what's right before us, right here, right now. And oftentimes we do this in the form of daydreaming. Thinking or thinking about the past, what happened then? Or thinking about the future, what's gonna happen in the future? And so we're constantly flipping back and forth, past, future, past, future, past, future. Sometimes I get whiplash watching my mind go back and forth, you know, so much yeah. rather than just staying right here, right here in this very life. You know? I might think that when I was in my 20s and I had more hair and more sex, you know, that I was happier then. You know? Or that when I get into my 50s, I'm already in my 50s now, so maybe I'll say my 60s. When I get in my 60s, then I have more money because someday maybe I'll have more money. Then it will be better and I'll be happier, okay? But this not being present for the life we have right now, I would suggest is another form of contention, another way of being in opposition to the reality, because we think that life, a better life, exists elsewhere. Somehow, magically, we're going to get there. We think anywhere but here. You ever have that thought arise? Anywhere but here. I uh, often notice how whenever I hear disturbing news, you know, the first thing that comes up in my mind are the words, Oh no! Oh no, not that. That couldn't happen. You know, if I read the newspaper or get online and look at the information on Facebook or something like that, I immediately have this reaction in opposition to what is happening, to what's going on in this moment. So, when people die in a mass shooting, or an act of racial terrorism, or there's an oil spill, or something that once more proves that we're devastating our planet. You know? When I hear that a friend has been assaulted, or that yet another woman has been raped, the first reaction is, no, the heart breaks, not this too, can I bear this too? It's too much. It's too much. We resist, we become opposing to what is. What would it be instead for a moment, a brief moment, to simply observe the conditions for how what is arising is arising? To study deeply what are the causes of the conditions for the way things are first. To notice, though. To say, ah, this is why things are the way they are. OK, now that I've accepted these causes and conditions and I acknowledge them, maybe now I can actually start to do something from a place of clarity, not reactivity. Uh, Zen is full of koans that point out the ways in which we create contention with the simple dualism of preferences in which we separate the world in dichotomous piles of, I like this, I don't like that. Here's a phrase by teaching, by one of uh, a Zen master in China from a sutra called the Xinxing Ming, Trust in Mind. He says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. Just the hairbreadth deviation, and we fall into one side or another, and suffering arises. And a lot of our complaining And seeking is a product of our tendency to want to judge and evaluate, to measure and compare our life, you know, to others around us, with some made up magical yardstick of perfection. I think this often happens on Facebook. I don't know. I think that's a new thing where people judge themselves about what all their friends are doing on Facebook, right? And then they get depressed. Everyone's doing all these fabulous things and going on vacation and doing this and doing that. But most of the time, the only things we paste on, post on Facebook are the good, the happy things, right? You know? you know? The part that we, the way we want to be seen. And then we have this yardstick that's not genuine, this way of measuring each other, you know? Um, our guiding teacher here, T. S. Strozer. Um, She's back in San Francisco for a couple months now. She says that comparison mind is death. Comparison mind is death. We die on the inside to the life we have whenever we fall into judging and evaluating ourselves and the world around us. We die both emotionally because we don't value who we really are when we compare ourselves to others. We also die literally because we fight wars to prove we're more right than another. So when we let the wind of our egos become still, and the flag of our small selves to be lowered from its pole, then we can drop our judgmental and thinking minds and our arguments with life. And when this happens, suddenly a space opens up for another possibility to arise. So returning for a moment back to the koan. Is it the flag or the wind that is moving? So notice when Nang arrives, he doesn't join the monks in arguing. He doesn't get involved in either side. In fact, he cuts off the conversation. He tells the monk that they are monks that they are wasting their time, that the wind and the flag are both just phenomenon. Images, if you will, projected onto a movie screen, a movie screen of our minds. Look, he says. Stop. Shut up. And look directly at consciousness itself. Look directly at the mind itself. Not the external phenomenon. Not out there, but in here. And with that, with that instructions, the monks are literally dumbstruck dumb in the sense of not being able to speak. Their minds go blank. And that blankness, that momentary pause of don't-know mind, is the gateway to a new recognition, a new insight, the gateway to a larger world, a world beyond just this one. And that's That's Wei Neng's intention. He wants to break the monk's typical way of thinking and relating to the world, you know, and throw them into this world, into this space that is beyond preferences, beyond concepts, beyond ideas of how things should and shouldn't be. And so what this koan is actually pointing to is that exchanging one idea for another, switching From one conviction about the flag to an opposing view, doesn't help relieve our fundamental experience of dukkha, of suffering. Because what it leaves in place is our mental habit patterns, our usual way of perceiving and engaging the world. So what is being encouraged is to step out of those usual habit patterns. How do we do that? How do we step out of those usual habit patterns? How do we step out of arguing with the world and with our lives? Arguing in our minds? So as many of you know, who have been here before, the primary practice of Zen is something called Zazen. Sitting meditation. Za, sitting, Zen, meditation. And so some of you came for sitting meditation instruction this morning and you were told to take a particular posture, upright, alert, yet relaxed, to kind of tuck the chin a little bit in, keep the eyes open, focus down, alert, and then just allow all your experience to flow, right? But there's another fundamental instruction for zazen, and that is do nothing. So I don't know if your Zazen instructor told you today, that's what you basically are doing when you come to meditation, doing nothing. Okay. So you're not moving, you're not fidgeting, you're not trying to change your experience or change your mind, you know, or change anything about what's happening in this present moment. You're just observing life. You're softening simply into being, Allowing yourself simply to be, to relax into who you already are, as you are. We're making what's called in Zen an effortless effort to simply be present and awake. Okay. And let our life flow. Let our life blossom, bloom right here as it is. Okay, so there's no goal in Zen. There's nothing to get. You came here for just getting something, forget it. Yeah, you're not gonna get anything. Thank God you don't need to get something for a change. Maybe I should say thank Buddha. You know? <laughs> Finally, you don't have to acquire anything. This is not a, a capitalistic effort. You know, There's nothing to get. In fact, it's renunciation. You're letting go of everything in the sense that you're letting go of your small self, your conditioned self. The one burden that you, we constantly drag around again and again me, 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 you can let go of that. You can put it down and just come to rest, okay? And so part of our practice here is shikantaza. That's another Japanese word. That means just sitting. We are just sitting, doing nothing but just sitting. How radical is that? And it's radical because when we just sit here and allow the world and ourselves to arise, we're actually affirming all of life as it is. It's a total act of affirmation. This is what is. Things as it is. it doesn't mean that I need to like it or that things shouldn't change. If harm is being created, We need to do something about it that's important but first we have to come from this place of affirmation this is what is yes i acknowledge and accept this is what's happening then from that place we can act and we're doing this because we're coming from a larger place this larger space that holds us you know all of life can hold us in this way so For those of you who were here a couple months ago, I gave what was called my way-seeking Mind Talk, which is a talk about how I came to practice. And I uh, told you in the talk that I lived for eight years on a monastery in the Ventana, Ventana Wilderness of California near Big Sur. So deep, rugged mountains, takes like an hour on a dirt road just to get into the monastery itself. They're very secluded. And over those eight years that I was there, I learned so much about the practice of inner stability and silence and having no contention or argument with life by simply allowing the mountains themselves to teach me. So what i noticed and what I absorbed in my being as I slept and ate and walked and, and worked day to day is a way in which the upright, body of the mountains, steadfast, dignified, their quiet presence, was teaching me zazen, moment after moment, teaching me how to be in the world, how to meet what was difficult and challenging. And one of the things that was difficult and challenging was there was a major wildfire that passed through Tassahara through the monastery in 2008. And I happened to be um, fortunate enough to be one of the five monks who was there at the time that the fire came through. Some of you may say crazy enough. Um, But I was there and was able to help defend the monastery. And what stayed with me through that experience afterwards, which was not so much the preparation the weeks leading up to preparing for the fire, or the six and a half hours that the fire was passing through the monastery and we were engaged with trying to put the fire out and keep the buildings from burning. It was actually the experience of the mountains afterwards. I don't think it's too fanciful to say that the mountains didn't argue with the fire as the fire passed through and ravaged the body of the mountains. I don't think there was a natural contention between the two. It's actually what is the natural cycle of life in the mountains. The mountains depend on fire and fire depends on the mountains. The uh, wildflowers, the trees, the bushes, even the fish and animals depend on fire to survive. So it's a natural expression of being, of life itself. It's only us human beings who were there that made an argument. Oh, this is bad. Fire shouldn't happen. And so we did our best to keep it from happening, allowing it to pass. But what I remember about the mountains after the fire was actually the way that despite being devastated, despite everything being burned away, they remained sitting there upright, still, silent, vulnerable, yet majestic and noble. And the uh, image of the burnt mountains brought to mind for me a quote, um, a word, some words of encouragement from Suzuki Roshi that he gave one Sashin uh, during a period of zazen, And this is what he said. Don't move. Just die over and over. Don't anticipate. Nothing can save you now because you only have this moment. Not even enlightenment will help you now, because there are no other moments. With no future, be true to yourself and express yourself fully. Don't move. I think the primary argument that we as human beings have with life is with our impermanence all things are impermanent and we too will die that's the natural part of living and so then how do we learn to relax into our animal body into this very human fragile vulnerable being and say yes it is like this how do i meet my life how do i allow my life to be consumed by life itself in the same way that the mountains were consumed by the fire and yet still free still free within the fire of life so for those of you who are sitting today i'd like to encourage you to take up the practice of not moving and you know that means not moving physically So, whenever a particular itch, or discomfort, or physical pain, you know, comes up, try to just stay with it. Bring mind's awareness to that particular place of discomfort, and see if you can open to it a little bit more, soften to it, allow it to be what it is. Welcome it a little bit. You know, say, hello, itch. Hello, pain. Hello, whatever physical discomfort. I see you. I'm going to breathe with you for a little bit. I'm going to allow you to be what you are for this moment. I'm not going to resist just for a little bit. Try it out for three breaths. And after three breaths, you're like, "Mm -hmm, I can't do this anymore. Try it again for another three breaths. (laughs) And after the end of that, it changes, notice it. And if it doesn't change it, try it one more time with three breaths. After the third time, okay. This, this is too much. Like, then just do a light bow, acknowledge, I now need to move to adjust. Same thing with the mind. Try to see if you can keep your mind from moving, flapping back and forth. You know, allow mind's attention to settle with the breath, to the natural flow of life itself. You know? So any thoughts or feelings, emotions, phenomenon passing through, just imagine they're passing through an open sky Nothing you need to grab onto, nothing you need to cling, nothing you need to entertain or fight, or resist again. Just notice, oh, there's a particular cloud thought. Okay, bye-bye. You know? Just continuing to manifest this openness of being. And if it gets too much, the mind gets too busy, redirect mind's tension back to the breath, back to the natural flow of the wind of impermanence. So in this way, this practice of letting go, moment after moment, letting go of resisting and arguing, we become free, freeing ourselves to be truly ourselves. So then we can meet the life that's before us and help to bring harmony and love into the world. So um, because it's a one-day sitting, usually we try to maintain silence so rather than opening up for questions like we might want to um, i'm going to honor the container of silence and encourage you if you do have a question hold it with don't know my. put it there and try not to for a brief time figure it out just for a little bit you know just allow it oh question allow it to kind of be in be here and compost and kind of have its own little space to resonate in you. And if it still is around, come next week, you know, and I'll be around. You know, we can talk then or ask someone else here, another teacher or someone like that or study or so on. The questions is what actually brings us to life in many ways, you know, helps us to examine and let go of what is. Okay. So rather than ask questions, time for questions. I do want to end with one poem. I had to keep this trend. I've been reading a poem every time I do a Dharma talk since I've been here, and I thought this poem was very apropos, so I'll finish with one poem. And this is one of my favorite poems, and it's called Lost. It's by a poet named David Wagner, and it peals in, appears in the preface of a book by David White called The House of Belonging. Lost. So imagine you're in the mountains, in the middle of the mountains. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to the raven. No two branches the same to the wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.